1: hello everybody and welcome back to new books in psychoanalysis podcast channel of the new books network i'm dr roy barsness psychoanalytic psychologist author of core competencies in relational psychoanalysis and founder and executive director of the contemporary psychodynamic institute and i'm your host for today i have the privilege of interviewing psychoanalysts carl waite and Teresa tisdale on their recent text entitled Lacanian Psychoanalysis and Eastern Orthodox Christian Anthropology in Dialogue, recently published and released by Rutledge. In its complex and scholarly text Carl and Teresa offer us a unique engagement with the faith system, Eastern Orthodoxy, in dialogue with Lacanian psychoanalysis. Two traditions that may at times seem opaque or difficult to understand, Teresa and Carl elicit within us the reflective and contemplative posture of orthodoxy, as well as the listening ear of Lacanian psychoanalysis. Christian Snyder, academic director of the Institute of Orthodox Christian Studies at Cambridge University, says this intellectually bold and stimulating monograph will enrich and challenge both orthodox theology and Lacan scholarship. And indeed, it does. Welcome, Carl and Teresa. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Good to have you here. Why don't you, um, each of you just give a bit of an introduction of yourselves and also how the two of you uh, met and came to write this text together.
0: Sure. So I met Teresa actually in grad school when I was at Azusa Pacific University. And, uh, this book is actually an outgrowth of the dissertation I worked on under her stewardship. And, uh, Currently, I'm at Boston Children's Hospital. I'm an attending psychologist here on the inpatient psychiatry service, and I also do a little bit of writing and have a small private practice on the side. But during the course of writing this, I was also, as I noted, a student under Teresa and really coming into learning uh, about psychology in general, as well as learning about psychoanalysis as well. And uh, Teresa, I'm sure you might want to add something about our, our work together, but. If you want to introduce yourself,
2: sure. Thanks. Um, thanks, Carl. Yeah, I'm Teresa Tisdale, and I'm a professor of doctoral psychology at Azusa Pacific University, where I've been for starting now my twenty second year, and um, before that was at Boston University. So, longtime academic. Um, also, I'm a clinical psychologist and a um, certified uh, clinical psychoanalyst. Um, so, I have a private practice in addition to my university work. And I see patients in um, psychoanalytic psychotherapy as well as um, psychoanalysis. And um, I met Carl, as he noted, some years ago when Carl was a student. And I was immediately impressed by his um, fine mind and his capacity to work with complex theory. And uh, he was very passionate about integrating his faith, um, Eastern Orthodoxy, with psychoanalysis And early on um, was connected with the lacanian institute in san francisco and um, wanted to take on what i think is um, for anyone who knows dissertations the formidable challenge of a theoretical dissertation which he um, completed um, and received honors at graduation um, in the integration of his uh, faith and psychoanalysis um, and received an outstanding award at graduation. So um, when Carl was interested in publishing, um, I was delighted to partner with him. I've been an editor in various capacities for over 25 years and um, was delighted to come alongside him and prepare the monograph and um, be able to contribute to what is the growing literature that's relating um, various faith traditions with psychoanalysis?
1: Well, congratulations, Carl. I didn't know that part. And I have to say that this text is um, far in advance of any um, uh, new new uh, theorist and clinician coming on site. And so congratulations to you both for such a fine fine piece of work thank you very much yeah and you've done a beautiful job of of um taking on a very complex the complexity of lacan and and a theology that Teresa has just said is very dear to you in making a significant contribution to these integrative faith uh, uh processes of traditions and psychoanalysis so why did you want to do this and carl maybe we'll begin with you why Why were you so eager about this, um, even in graduate school and now as you've continued to be a clinician and a writer and a thinker? uh, Why is this important to you?
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's funny hearing Teresa talk about it because uh, I don't know if you remember Teresa, but the actual concept of writing an integration piece was, I think, your idea. And uh, and I think um, I've always been really grateful for that because when I was first, Trying to figure out what I wanted to do for my dissertation, I, I knew that I wanted to work with you. And I knew that I wanted to incorporate Lacanian psychoanalysis in some way. And uh, what's really interesting to me is when you first suggested that, I was a little hesitant because uh, my faith is something very personal to me. It's not something I uh, really intended to incorporate into my uh, academic work in, in this particular type of way. And at the same time, after you suggested that and I really spent some time reflecting on it and thinking about it, I started to notice the ways that there actually is a lot of unique resonance and consistency almost in, in some of the ways that uh, both e- Christian Eastern Orthodoxy and Lacanian psychoanalysis uh, really think about things and especially how they view the the human person hence, the idea of anthropology being kind of central here. And and so I became increasingly eager about it because I started seeing all these connections in two areas I was very interested in, but hadn't really juxtaposed or put together before. And I think it gave me a way to really work through some of what I was learning, uh, both in in my personal life and my faith, as well as in the clinical uh, and psychoanalytic work and engagement that I, I was doing. So I think it really brought together a couple very important parts of my life. And I, I felt thrilled to be able to contribute a bit to the literature, not just at the intersection of faith and psychoanalysis, but at this particular intersection between Eastern Orthodoxy and Lacanian psychoanalysis.
1: I want to throw out um, an idea that I, as I read this book, and then you guys can help me, um, uh, Tell me whether or not I'm somewhat correct, and so I, in con, as I was reading this and, and Carl and Teresa uh, Eastern Orthodoxy is new, new to me actually, and in contrast to Reformation and Roman Catholic theologies, Eastern orthodoxy or <laughs> the Eastern Orthodoxy appears to be a different interpretation of the creation of humanity, original sin, death, and an understanding of salvation as experience over knowledge which is truly a Lacanian idea, I think, of the real. And it seems to me that these aspects form the axes in which you argue for a robust dialogue between Lacan and and Eastern Orthodoxy. Do I have that correct, or how can you clean that up for us or clear that up for for me and us, as listeners?
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple parts to it. One is you're right on track with Eastern Orthodoxy having a very different view of sort of the whole thread from uh, you know, more Western Christian traditions. And I, I think one of the things that was helpful to me when I was first learning about Eastern Orthodoxy was just a, a really basic distinction in metaphor. Whereas growing up, uh, what I often heard was a, a comparison to a sort of courtroom scene where God is a judge and, you know, we've done something illegal, essentially, and have to get pardoned through uh, the sacrifice of Christ. In Eastern Orthodoxy, the metaphor is really much more almost medical, that the church is a hospital, for example, that God is a physician and that sin is an illness more than anything else. So I think that perspective really shifts a little bit of of the narrative in terms of understanding how these things uh, in the, the whole story of humanity are read, how we understand the human person is not totally depraved or as something fundamentally flawed, but on a journey that is the same journey. Uh, from beginning to end it's not that we were created perfectly and then became imperfect but that we were created in this state of being neither really perfect or imperfect and uh, the reason for that being that perfection is a matter of growth and growing in union with God and uh, that has been the story of humanity all along even if there were some uh, sort of um, uh, times along the way where things were set back or where humanity might have gone further away from god that's always about that that narrative of moving towards towards god and towards that union i think the other thing i would note just as a sort of fundamental connecting point with what lacanian psychoanalysis has to offer is a, a distinction in the east that i haven't heard in the west it might be there but is certainly prominent more so in the east which is a distinction between god's essence and god's energies And the way that this came about was actually in the 14th century in something called the Hesychast Controversy. I won't get too much into detail, but the basic idea was that there were certain monks engaged in a type of prayer, and they reported experiencing uh, this divine light that would appear to them. And they believed it was the presence of God, essentially, that God was uh, in that light, that it was uncreated light. And others were concerned that this really raised some problems around confusion between the divine essence and human essence. And if God is really imminent, does that mean that there's sort of an imminent God and a transcendent God? And and what does this mean? And the essence and energies distinction is really a way of saying when God appears in some form, whether in the incarnation or any of the number of other ways that, that he's appeared to people throughout history, Uh, that that is God's energies. In other words, what we can experience of God. And there's also this other part, this essence that is deeply unknowable. And in the Orthodox tradition, we often will talk about things like the abyss of God's mercy or uh, God dwelling in unapproachable light or uh, even in in darkness. These ways really highlighting this this absence that we can't really fully comprehend and really forms the center of Orthodox theology as primarily a negative theology. Now, we certainly have things we can say in the sense of God is uh, present in the incarnation. We can refer to the definitions of the creeds and councils. But outside of of these types of expressions, uh, there's really a profound humility that um, I think as Orthodox Christians, we try to approach things with, that we can't say a whole lot about God, but we can certainly approach knowing God through experiences, you noted, not just through a knowledge base or through a systematic theology.
1: Hmm. You know, I, you both came to my mind on Friday. I was um, sadly enough and unfortunate, but at a funeral of a good friend who uh, was uh, Eastern Orthodox. And what they said about Dear Brenda was her faith was, it's not for me to know, it's for me to trust. And there's something about what you're saying here about the uh, value of the unknowable—that which we can't know, uh, absence that we cannot comprehend—that um, came to my mind as as I heard uh, heard heard you just speaking now and heard of her faith journey on Friday. Yeah, uh, I think, go ahead.
0: Oh, I was just going to note. I I think that um, you know, I'm sorry to hear about that, and and I I think at the same time that is a really good. Encapsulation of of what I'm trying to get at a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and I think
0: um, to to comment on
2: that, and, and Carl, that's a really beautiful expression of of some of the um, what I think are the the ponderous um, aspects of Orthodox theology and um, Eastern Orthodox theology, and myself as a as a Catholic, um, I really came to appreciate the way that Eastern um, Orthodox traditions um, perceive uh, these, um, I think, very fundamental aspects of Christian faith that have to do with the nature and presence of God. Um, And in my own life as a Catholic, I'm very drawn to the medieval mystics um, who also um, talk about the uh, mystery of God, um, more than the certainty of God, and I, I think the—I um, mean, this isn't the place to go into church history, but I think one of the the um, sharp turns of the Protestant Reformation was in a quest for certainty, um, and I, I think that the um, the dialectic between mystery and certainty was was tilted towards certainty. Um, but the Eastern Orthodox tradition, and I think the particularly the mystical tradition of Catholicism um, embraces the mystery of God. And, and with us being created in the image of God, I think we also embody that kind of mystery, which psychoanalysis is interested in uh, knowing or coming to know, although we know only in part.
1: Yeah. Well, I have to tell you that um, <clears throat> I was uh doing a group supervision, we took a break and I looked at the introduction of your book and it really captured me. And so I, as soon as I, the, everybody came back and said, hey, you got to listen to this. This is good stuff. And uh, you say this, Jacques Khan was uh, remarked that Christianity is the true religion. And what might appear at first glance as an endorsement, you say, is rather a sharp critique, for he went on to say, it's the worst that can be said about it. As Lacan explained, Christianity and particularly the church he grew up with uh, is adept at providing meaning in the sense that meaning serves as the purpose of rationalization, which keeps the unconscious at bay. This just really turned me on in terms of our um, not only our our psychology, particularly of our psychologies today that are so rational and reductionistic. Then here you are bringing together, um, as you've just been describing, a, the- a theology of, of uncertainty and a Lacanian idea of the real. And I'm wondering if um, you can somehow help us understand as listeners and perhaps even give us a crash course in Lacanian psychoanalysis and Eastern Orthodoxy and, and how you connect these two and how they, as you say, use the word dialogue, they've enhanced one another um, in their in their philosophies and in your thinking as thinkers as well as clinicians
0: yeah well it's a a big question but i i think we can certainly approach it i would i suppose start by saying just a little bit about lacan and his work and in particular uh, lacanian psychoanalysis as a broader school not just about lacan But one of the things that uh, people tend to know about Lacan if they only know one thing is, uh, if it's not desire, it's usually this idea of there being three registers, the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real. These three uh, links which sort of bind our our experience together. Uh, The imaginary being really what's visual, what we can see, the symbolic being what we can Represent in language, and the real being what really falls outside of of these ways of uh, uh, seeing or or representing. And the course of his teaching over the twenty some odd years that he's most famous for for teaching uh, really evolved quite a bit. And you'll hear people talk about uh, you know an early Lacan, a middle Lacan, a late Lacan, and there are some pretty sharp differences in some of those teachings. However, one thing that really remains consistent is a focus on some way of accounting for uh, what doesn't fit within our representational systems. In other words, what's missing and what we're seeing, what's missing and what we're representing, and what is uh, not, in other words, part of our, our entire representational system front to back. So when Lacan's talking about religion being, um, you know, really a a sort of quintessential example of religion, Lacan is critiquing the tendency of religion. And I I think he goes on to group in actually a number of other ways of thinking alongside religion here, but uh, really the way that they tend to cover over or uh, paint over these gaps that otherwise exist. In other words, uh, there's an explanation for all of our experience. There's uh, a reason for everything. There's some way that we can simply account for whatever uh, happens or comes up. And and there's a degree to which this would apply, uh, I think, to certain types of uh, science as well that are more theoretical. And Lacan even talks a little bit in some places about science is essentially being a, a paranoid process of, of explaining everything. Uh, now, this is a, a, obviously a huge simplification of Lacan's work, but what I'm trying to get at is uh, something that he really, at different points of his work, calls different things. So in, in one year, he talks about das Ding, or the thing, the central absence inside, uh, so to speak, every person, sort of the center of subjectivity. Uh, he'll later talk more about the object a or the object little a and that takes on a lot of the characteristics of what he originally calls dusting and uh, again it's really this idea not of an object in the sense many schools of psychoanalysis refer to it but the object as fundamentally the lost object the lacking object again as something missing at, at the center of being and it's this central absence That I think really lays a lot of groundwork for dialogue with Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Uh, Just like, and I think Teresa alluded to this a little bit earlier, just like we can say there's an essence and energies distinction with God, this is also true for people. That you can hear my voice right now, I'm communicating with you, you have some sense of my expression or my energies, but there's a, a deep part of myself that you aren't seeing, that you don't have access to, that you truly can't come to know and that's true of, of any human relationship. And as a matter of fact, one of the things that Lacan might add is that I fundamentally can't know that about myself either, that there's something unconscious uh, in in this absence that uh, is really uh, hidden from, from me also. I think another part of your question was about um, the the dialogue piece and what uh, our, our hopes might have been. I, I uh, think I, I might take a pause here, though, see if either of you have any other thoughts or questions before moving on to to that part.
1: Teresa, do you have something you'd like to add to that? I I just, I found myself quite mesmerized by you, Carl, actually. I thought that was an excellent, excellent uh, lecture. Uh, Good job. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, just uh, just
2: a a quick comment, because I'd like for Carl to be able to move on to this second part, which I, I think both are Um, fundamental to our conversation here today. And and that is that in, in these ways um, that we've talked about both Eastern Orthodoxy and um, the contributions of Lacanian psychoanalysis, I think illuminate the, the uh, depth of consideration of uh, human nature um, and the analytic relationship that there, there is the, um, you know, we would say, you know, if I can apply some Freudian language, there's a manifest relationship and then there's a latent relationship. Um, and both are conscious and unconscious, um, in, in their, um, um, in, in their essence, if we might say there's contributions at both conscious and unconscious levels to the relationship. So I think it does, as Carl noted, introduce, um, a, what I would say is a, is a um, intellectual humility, um, a theological humility and a psychoanalytic humility um, that we do not and cannot know fully. Um, and I think in, um, in science, for example, in psychology in particular, as you noted, Roy, there's this push to know with certainty. And, um, you know, what we're uh, illuminating here um, which I think threads in psychoanalysis know, is that, that this is not possible. Um, and so I appreciate the the, the ways um, we have been able to articulate that um, and offer that for consideration.
1: Yeah, I'm sure each of you experience, we all experience this, that our patients come to see us and they want to be fixed. And and when we send them down the path of uh, unknowing <laughs> and exploration, which is in many ways, not only the psycholytic path, but the spiritual path of quest, um, that it is undoing in some ways. And I'm wondering if you can speak to how this presence and absence and this idea of lack is actually one of the most um, meaningful aspects of being human uh, and how that might demonstrate itself in the clinic.
0: Yeah, I think your comment about people coming in wanting to be fixed is uh, maybe the most clear example of it. I think the it's interesting thinking about contemporary uh, psychological research in particular. Uh, I think one of the things that I would hope that this work could highlight, for people who are open to it at least, is the idea of singularity. In other words, that There's something that is not fitting within the frameworks that we have within each of us. And I think the word singularity really captures that well. That is a term that uh, you might hear in Lacanian psychoanalysis. It also brings to mind the idea of a black hole, actually, which uh, I I mention only because that's a really great example of a, a, a situation where all our mathematical models, all our scientific knowledge really breaks down at that particular point we have no idea what's going on there because it, it fits completely not inside our our system uh, there's obviously stuff we can understand around it we can see certain parts around it but there's this again singularity at the center and i think the um the the challenge with clinical work today is a lot of people particularly i would say in in a consumer capitalist society where we're you know told if we desire something then let's go you know buy the thing that we need and fix it uh, people tend to have this idea about their own health as well. That well, I just need to get a certain type of treatment, and then I'll be fine. I'll be fixed. And the interesting thing about this, to me, is really highlighted in the way that people often use the term "evidence-based" to mean empirically supported. In other words, uh, they'll confuse the idea of practicing an evidence-based way with just using some treatment that's been manualized or has had a certain number of RCTs or random clinical trials. And in reality, the idea, um, even in in terms of the APA's definition or the American Psychological Association's definition, is really balancing that research with the clinical expertise of the therapist, but also the patient's characteristics. In other words, really needing to take that singularity into account. So to answer your question about how this looks in the clinic, I think one of the things that really stands out to me particularly in work with adolescents is uh, the ways in which whether it's parents or even healthcare systems, that we tend to try to um, minimize the parts of, especially in, in my view, but I'm a little biased because this is the work I do, but we tend to minimize the, the subjectivity, I think, of children and adolescents, that we try to fix them or try to keep them from doing certain things, but really miss some of the, the ways that fundamentally Our ideas of who they are, a parent's idea of who their child is, can really be so complete, so systematic, just like a theology could be, that there's no room left for who their child is and sort of the center of their subjectivity in these ways that uh, really do require a a degree of um, a, a negative theology. In other words, um, if you've ever worked with adolescents, either uh, of you or you who are listening, uh, you might be familiar with the ways that they can often articulate what's not happening better than they can what is happening, um, or that they can say, well, you know, that my, what my parent says is not true, even if they can't come up with what exactly is. And and I think uh, this is all by way of analogy a little bit, but I really do think there are similar processes at stake here between the type of engagement we see in, in Lacanian, uh, psychoanalysis and in Orthodox theology and the ways that these ideas also show up in, uh, clinical work, even in, in, you know, institutional settings. And I think it's a testament to the fact that there's some basic human functioning going on here at the center of all of us.
2: Yes. I'd, I'd like to, um, Echo and add add to that. I really appreciate the way that um, Carl is zeroing in on what I I think is um, crucial to the the future of um, of our field. Um, and if I may be so bold as to say, the future of mental health, and that is this notion of particularity um, and singularity that in um, in mental health there is a push for um a um what i think is a tragedy of by your by their diagnosis you will know them Uh, and and the categorization which i think is dehumanizing of people um, but that's that's not being called out you know what's being called out is the um advances in science and you know aren't we doing so well in understanding these diagnostic categories that completely miss uh the unique a singularity, a particularity of, as we would say as Christians, of, of being uniquely created in the image of God um, with, with each person, we would say, research language, and, and of one. Um, and so that means their their context must be the focus of my interest and attention when I'm going to try to conceptualize their and understand their suffering. Um, and so I think this is a radical shift from the trends. In psychology in general, um, and where I think that psychoanalysis and the kind of work that we're offering have a very robust understanding of persons um, biologically, psychologically, spiritually, um, and to and to value the unique nature of each person that no matter what the similarities of diagnosis or family context or what have you might be, um, that, that we want to um, hold and value the complexity of each person and be willing to immerse ourselves in their, um, in their life, in their story, um, in understanding um, their suffering um, which we will, as we've said all along here today, only understand in part, but as best we can with the limits of language, and um, you know, people being uh, people um, who are, um, you know, undeniably flawed. Um, but this is the process that we enter into um, in helping people understand them themselves and accompanying them in, in the growth and hope and healing they have for their uh, future
1: yeah well as i'm listening to you all there's uh, several things i've jotted down here um and i think what you're bringing to us is the challenge of of our of our current psychological culture which is the reduction of the person to an object to be cured rather than a subject with in which we uh, engage which moves us into subjectivity and intersubjectivity that there's uh, a whole relatedness that moves us way beyond singularity which brings me to a question um i love how you also and what lacan is bringing but again uh, i feel um that i need more more lacanian in me but this idea of um the eruption of the real um and this idea of the unconscious and, and, I, and i'm as i'm tying this together um i think all of our reductionistic uh, programs essentially are a defense against the terror of the real and i'm wondering what you think about that and the terror of lack
0: yeah I, I think there's uh maybe a couple parts to it i i think on the one hand the sort of uh stereotypical neurotic position is to think of uh, all the ways i'm you know not fundamentally lacking either um, you know either I can be what other people want or that I don't need anybody else or uh, that you know I, I don't have to uh, really give up or sacrifice anything I can have it all whatever that means to, to any individual person and I think again that that really is highly um, well I think it's accentuated in the, the society we have here in the US and I think that uh, that, Sort of lack and, and the avoidance of that lack is one part of it. When it comes to the real and, and the eruption of the real, I think that's that's also part of it. Uh, although in, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, I think the word terror is really apt here. The idea is that when we come across something that uh, really breaks past our boundaries in terms of language and, and our sort of holistic explanations of things, uh, it's, it's really quite terrifying. And I think there's some degree of correlation here with the idea of terror management theory that in in that way of thinking that religions for example are a way of just managing our death anxiety. And I think that's a simplistic way of of thinking about it. I think even the idea of terror management theory is a way of managing terror. I think that there's a a way that all the human knowledge that we accumulate uh, it doesn't have to to serve that purpose, but I think for a lot of people it does serve that purpose that if we simply can calculate everything, figure everything out that we can um, you know save the planet that we can save individuals from aging or save them from every disease, and you know those things may come at some point, but even when they do, I think we'll find there are still people who are deeply unhappy, and I think we'll at some point start running out of explanations for why that is. And I think, again, that has to do with the fact that even in a perfect world, in an ideal world, there's going to be some lack. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think these registers of
2: Lacan, I really appreciate um, to give us a way of thinking about the the, um, concurrent layers at which we are processing experience, um, and what Carl was just alluding to there reminded me of Freud, you know, who we know, I'm sure most of our listeners know, um, early on was adamant about um, denouncing religion and embracing science um, because of the, I would say, the, the her- hermeneutical power that religion had at the time um, for understanding and perceiving reality and human nature, human life. Um uh, Etc. And so, um, so looking for these scientific explanations for everything, including you know the unconscious, as as you know Freud denounced religion as a defense against the existential um, anxiety of nothingness. If we think of of um, of um, Niebuhr, uh, then I think psychoanalysis can become, in some ways, that that same defense of trying to find um you know the the answer or or language but also at the same time we have to hold that with humility that we are not ever going to fully know for example what happened in someone's past i mean there's their memories of it their internalizations of it they're the the as you said, Roy, the intersubjective co-created narrative we can come to together um, to try to conceptualize and articulate it. But there's always more that we have not grasped. Um, when that breaks through, um, it can be um, terrifying. Um, it can feel annihilating, disorganizing. Um, and I think we and our our patients, um, both experience that, and perhaps even have ways of defending against that when it happens.
1: Yeah, and and not only the patient, but myself, and I think other therapists as well. That when we come up against the real and our own sense of anxieties and lack, that we are, we also are defended. And uh, I think we ought, I think why our field has gone so reductionistic. It's not because the patient might not be looking for a deeper meaning in, or a deeper life, but because we as therapists are also afraid of facing our own, uh, the own de- our own death anxiety. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Um. So, could you? Ex- uh, I I think. Oh, I'm going to read uh, a, from your book here again on uh, page 74. The second way of relating to lack is through love. <clears throat> Um, And desire in the analytic sense, you say, is the pursuit of compensation for what is lacking in the subject. And uh, Lacan says, love is giving what you don't have. And I'm wondering if you could uh, elaborate on that. That feels pretty rich to me.
0: Yeah. So Lacan talks about love in a a couple of different ways throughout the course of his teaching. Uh, One of the most well-known ways is, is this idea of love is a way of giving what you don't have. And I, I think there's a couple ways to think about this, but one that Lacan uses himself when introducing this idea, he references uh, that if you can imagine you know the world's wealthiest person I guess Elon Musk in this case, but just you know any very wealthy person, uh, giving uh, a gift, a very expensive gift to someone it wouldn't mean so much. Uh, Whereas if, on the other hand, uh, they were to give you something else, like maybe something about their time, something they have very little of, that that would actually have a a much different impact. And I think Bruce Fink uh, extends this metaphor to a very wealthy parent, either giving their child everything they ask for or spending time with them when they're very busy. And it's really giving out of what they don't have that carries uh, the the sign of love more so than giving what you do have, giving out of your wealth or abundance. And I think that calls to mind the the story of even the widows' might, where in seeing all these people giving such wondrous wealth, uh, Christ actually says, "Well, the person who just gave a couple pennies gave the most because that was that was it. That's that's what that person had. In other words, uh, giving out of what again one doesn't have." being more crucial than giving out of what one does. I think there's also more theoretically dense ways to talk about this in terms of allowing someone to, or acknowledging that they are engaged in some way with your lack, that they're not fulfilling it, they're not completing you, but there's some way that um, they are interacting with that part of you. And um, I think even thinking about The way that Lacan talks about the process of uh, not exactly development, but something akin to that, that there's a way that uh, as children growing older, there's a really important idea in the parent lacking something and the child being able to make use of that lack. In other words, that the parent's not complete and not omnipotent, not perfect. And I think we can probably call to mind cases where parents have maybe not communicated that imperfection. And, uh, you know, that we've seen some of those consequences, I think, where the child is embodying that imperfection. Um, At any rate, I think, again, there's different ways to to kind of talk about it, but uh, hopefully that adds some context to his idea of love, giving what you don't have.
2: have. Right.
0: Well, and, and
2: that calls to mind a, a recent, um encounter I had with with a a patient. Um, and and I think any of us who, who see patients may resonate with some version of this. And that is the, the process of of grieving that we and our patients go through when internally and interpersonally we, we come to a crossroad of holding both what our parents were capable of, and then what they were not capable of, because there's always the relentless hope that the other is going to fill in the lack. Um, and, uh, and that keeps people on um, trajectories of over and over and over again, seeking relationships with people who, who are incapable um, of meeting the lack because no human person could. I mean, it's, it's motivated by a very deep, um, absence, a very deep need developmentally. And so being able to come to those crossroads in ourselves and with our patients, where we are, um, challenged to hold both what a person could provide, um, and what they could not provide, um, did not have the capacity for uh, not that they did have the capacity, but they were holding back. I mean, that's always, uh, or I find often is the narrative they've been carrying. But to really understand the lack of another person and their capacity, I, I think can lead to breakthroughs in ourselves and with our patients about the um, the coexistence of of um, both being able to meet a need in the sense of the widow's might, but also having um, the capacity to hold what isn't possible, what wasn't possible, and uh, that can, I think, be a very uh, crucial and um, profound uh, crossroad to reach uh, personally
1: and clinically. Yeah, this is good stuff. Um, as I'm thinking of what you're all saying we're all prone to the refusal of the recognition of lack because it uh, leads to despair and our on our, our vulnerabilities and our humanities. But in a way, the way that I'm reading you all is the essentialness of lack is it moves us towards desire and towards the other. Uh, and then it's going to be the recognition that uh, the hope in that but also the despair that it'll still always be there. But it's it's the mover. Would you agree with me that um, this idea of the lack is a mover towards the other?
0: Well, I I think the um, the I guess there's two thoughts that come to mind. The first is that the recognition or not of of having a lack uh, may or may not come with a lot of distress or, or grief. I think. That would depend a bit on the person. The um, process in Lacanian psychoanalysis, um, there's some authors who've uh, written at the crossroads of Lacanian psychoanalysis and Zen Buddhism, for example. And there's a way that these authors talk about a certain emptiness that you arrive at in the process or towards the end of an analysis that isn't so much a a true emptiness, but a a relinquishing of our narcissistic ideas of who I think I am or all the ways I think I'm complete. And that at the other side, there's a sort of non-ego space where there's still a a self to some degree, but it's, it's not the same narcissistically invested sense of self that we might have to start with as a defense against that lack.
1: That's very nice. That narcissistic idea of completion
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the reason I mention this is because I don't know from a Lacanian perspective if we would say that lack necessarily draws one towards the other. I I think in a certain sense um, there is in in cases at least for in Lacan would by the way in, in Lacanian psychoanalysis uh, everybody is either you know some type of of diagnostic category and and a broad swath of people would generally be neurotic. And uh, the reason I mention that is because uh, when Lacan talks about neurotic structure, he's talking about a a large number of people, a pretty common situation, in other words, that for someone who is neurotic, that uh, there's that, you know, denial, maybe in some way, um, not necessarily in uh, the, the you know technical sense of denial, but talking about repression displacement, and displacement and these types of defenses that keep at bay our acknowledgement of the lack. Um, it, it really is meant in a lot of ways to um, uh, really, again, protect ourselves or in some ways engage with the lack in the other, which is, uh, I think, one way in which that lack can move us in that direction. I think it's also a way of recognizing um, once we are coming to that, that Different position in, in relationship to lack that um, the lack that we have is also uh, uh, the lack in the other, which is why Lacan mentions that you know, desire is the desire of the other. And there's that ambiguity there, both desiring the other, but it's also what the other desires. So I think there's an intimate way that lack is connected with the other. Uh, but I think it is important that there's this corresponding lack and uh, that that's an important way that. Um, that that there is a way of engaging with the other, and if I could, I, I think one way that we can think about that, I know that in most Christian theologies, at least that I'm aware of, there's this notion that God does not lack. Uh, in other words, that that God is fully everything or something like this. And I think one way of trying to understand this or talk about it is to note that from an Orthodox perspective. Um, there's a way in which there's always uh, an importance on human will. In other words, that salvation is really a matter of uh, two wills, uh, but God's will is always for salvation. In other words, there's a way in which God lacks to the degree that um, he leaves space for each person to to use their own will. And I think, in the sense that um, when you think about love being giving what you don't have and uh, the way that there's a creation out of nothing. Of course, God didn't need to create everything. But in order to be able to give what God doesn't have, which would be uh, maybe each of our own individual free wills, uh, that this had to take place. And so I, I do think there's still this connection to the other, even in in the perspective of of faith. Um, but again, I think that that moment of lack or that recognition of lack is really, a crucial part of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just in the uh, idea of time here, and in, in just very briefly, how would you describe essence?
0: Um That's a little tricky. Uh, I actually have just been reading two full books on this topic, but I think in uh, in brief, uh, this is again one of those ideas that evolves a bit over time. Lacan talks about it a few different ways um one way of talking about it is as uh, essentially connected to that idea of the real erupting or the the real breaking into things it's that um maybe bodily experience of horror in in the face of it and i think at that stage of lacan's work it's really consistent with the the freudian idea of unpleasure uh, in other words that um for lacan uh what is experienced as unpleasure in in the conscious is also experienced in some way as enjoyment unconsciously. And this is why it sometimes gets translated as sort of a pleasure slash pain, although that term in itself is is a a bit reduced. But later on, Lacan will also talk about jouissance in a number of other ways. There's a sort of imagined jouissance uh, of the other that we suppose we could get that we've been barred from or castrated from, uh, but of course doesn't really exist. Uh, there's the the jouissance of the other with a big O which is really more about uh, a, a way of experiencing jouissance in relation to uh, something of, of of a religious order and actually interestingly enough when he's talking about this he does refer to a couple saints such as uh, Saint Teresa of Avila and uh, Saint John of the cross and talks about mysticism in in relation to this so uh, it it evolves over his his um period of of teaching from this more purely horrific experience to something that as uh, more transcendent and 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 when I say transcendent I don't necessarily mean metaphysically but transcending our, our structures of language and our understanding still connected very closely to the real, but in a perhaps different way.
1: Well, this has been, I'm sure, given our listeners definitely wet their appetite. It certainly wet mine to I continue to to study Lacan and and Eastern Orthodoxy, and I'm wondering as we come to an end. First of all, thank you so much. But what what would you want to leave the listener with today? And uh, also, what has this experience um, being in this conversation with me been like for you?
0: Well, I I think in terms of the first question, what I would want to to leave listeners with. Um, I, I guess it would really be that idea of singularity. I think even if you aren't a clinician or you aren't religious, I think it's important that people are um well giving um I don't know, giving giving themselves the the dignity of of being a singular being and not being identical to anyone else no matter what diagnosis or label or category that there is. Um, there's some way in which each and every one of us is, is singular. And that's something that's very important in both uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, as well as Lacanian psychoanalysis. And I think really is at the core of, of the work that we did in this book. And as for your second question, it's been delightful. I really appreciate your time today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's been fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to, to add
2: to that, um, Briefly, I, I think um, I, I was in, in my mind. Just as, as Carl was saying, singularity—the um, the, the word I've I've used in my own mind—is particularity, and I think it's a shift from from the uh, by their diagnosis we will know them um, into a um, by their em- embodied and embedded context we will know them, and so it's a press for um, for complexity. Um, and to hold, which I think is a theological value as well as a, a psychoanalytic value, is to hold the the u- uniqueness um, and value of each person, um, and to bring that sort of embodied presence ourselves uh, into the room. Um, what I also hope from this interview and from this book um, is to to add to the the growing conversation in psychoanalysis between religion and psychoanalysis that. Was overshadowed by Freud. And then after his death, as psychoanalyst Randy Sorensen noted, you know, the literature began to peak with an emphasis on religion um, and psychoanalysis. Winnicott, Fairbairn, others, you know, began that conversation. Where we are at the present time um, is this movement toward toward particularity or singularity. And as, as Carl had the inspiration to do with with my help, which I was delighted to contribute this um, is to, well, what if we look at, you know, what, which psychoanalytic um, theory and which aspects of it relating to what uh, religious tradition and what aspects of a religious tradition. And so in that, to that extent, I think we all can contribute um, to this conversation and it's been um, a delight and one of the joys of my professional and personal life to have known Carl and worked with him on this and um, been part of making this, but I think is a very valuable contribution, not just to the literature, but to the ways we each individually think about um, our life and our work um, as psychoanalysts and psychoanalytic psychologists and people of faith.
1: Yeah. That both. Um, both theologies and religions and psychoanalysis are in pursuit of something deep in the soul of humankind. And uh, that's why I like to hear your comments about how we could actually be in better dialogue with one another because our pursuits are similar. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, this has been delightful for me. Thank you so much for your time. And I I do encourage all of our readers to check out this book on psychoanalysis and eastern orthodox christian anthropology and dialogue Uh, today deepen your practice deepen your soul and um thank you all for being a part of this today and we'll sign off at this time thank you very much bye thank you so much yeah take care bye-bye